Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is dedicated to the memory of James Clinton Corsi, Navy sailor, World War II combat veteran. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? Now, do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Blit, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. Step back for one minute and look at the big picture. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. The often bond a family that very few can understand. Help me! Help you. <laughs> I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host Iris and I am here with my older brother. Wesley. Wesley. And today we're talking about Apple original film Greyhound. Greyhound. Starring Tom Hanks on Apple TV+. I've heard that Tom Hanks is thrilled that Apple, you know, that could be glad-handing, that he he's happy that it found a home on Apple TV because otherwise it wouldn't have been released. And on the same token, he's complained a little bit that maybe the picture isn't as sharp as he would have liked. I'm sure that Tom Hanks has the ideal home theater setup where he could preview it, right? He wanted his audience to enjoy the theatrical experience for his masterpiece. Believe me, Tom Hanks, we all did. And you refer to it as his masterpiece because he wrote it. He wrote it. He starred in it. Capable writer. He's been around, you know, doing that stuff for a while, but he adapted it. It's not an original by Tom Hanks. And adapted from The Good Shepherd, an apt religious title for the very devout Captain Krause. Yeah. He was so devout and the prayer was so much up front. It was prayer and Elizabeth Shue. And those were our glimpses into his personal life. And I, I was like, are they setting this up for a parable throughout? And if they were, I couldn't see how those themes were continued, you know, sustained. Obviously, it's life and death, and he is a shepherd. But beyond that, did you get the religious overtones where they worked in, or were they just sort of bookends? They were more bookended. There was too much action, too much plot to really kind of shoehorn the parable in. Elizabeth Shue is... Um, She's important in the sense that she's got second billing, but she has all of a few minutes of screen time. 
Yeah, she was there for one afternoon, right? Costume, wham, bam, and she's out of there? Yeah, exactly. She got into period costume and makeup. She sat down on a settee in a hotel lobby for an afternoon and smiled. And then uh, they called it a day. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's great. And it's good to see her. It's great to see her. She's like the paragon of aging gracefully. She looks fantastic. Yep. She represented his faith in a way that we can tangibly see, right? She represented the purity in his life and and the ideals that he was striving for, um, wanting to marry her, and I guess her saying that maybe wasn't a good idea, we'll see how the war pans out, kind of lent itself to whether or not he was going to make it through the black pit. And she takes care of his feet. How did she take care of his feet? She gave him the monogram slippers. Oh, I forgot about his that. His battle boots. Which he got all bloody. Yep, which he bloodied up in the thick of battle. In the thick of battle because he never once emerged from the battle. I presume the wounds on his feet were because he stood on them constantly for seven days or something? Yeah, in bad officer shoes or something. Dude never got a chance to sleep, never got a chance to pee. You'd think that if the Black Pit was this perilous and the convoy was so valuable, how many ships did they lose? Seven ships or ten ships or something? I don't know, a lot. You'd think they would have hedged their bets. You'd you'd think they'd have another Greyhound, you know, like a class destroyer ready to step up. You'd think they would have had additional captains in shifts kind of relieving each other. But nope, (laughs) it was all him all the time in the world's largest game of battleship, literally. And not to say that that's to be taken lightly because it actually happened. You know, this ship is fictitious and the character is fictitious but the black pit exists and certainly uh they were lost you know a lot of uh, a lot of valuable cargo millions of tons of cargo and and countless ships were lost to u-boats during the war when they didn't have air cover to, to provide for them i guess that was the root of the suspense and because there was no air cover they were in the black pit there was only one of them, and even at that, the ships are so unwieldy, they're so not dynamic, you can't see anything, you can't move very quickly, or like, you know, divert your route or whatever. But still, it was finesse, it was a finesse game enough so that the U-boats could get in under the guns, and so that, uh, you know, they would miss each other by a hair's breadth. That merchant ship that went past it almost hit them, it was like Titanic next to the iceberg. Right. I don't understand. Was were they so focused on the submarines that they missed that giant ship heading directly for them? I think so. I think they were so caught up in the action that there was it was just one thing at a time. So apparently the wolves were uh, getting in under the guns of the destroyers isn't a thing. Apparently, I mean, that was something that they could have tried, but they would just the captain would just order the ship to list to the side and they would blast straight down and destroy subs that got in that close. Hmm. Yeah, I guess they were looking for those cool trailer moments, you know, with the bullets with the tracer fire flying by and the ship lifting crazily and the massive explosions. Yep. And just a minute ago, I watched the Greyhound trailer because I hadn't seen the trailer before the movie because it gives you an idea of what the filmmakers or at least the trailer cutter, what they want you to focus on thematically in the film. Right. So it has his faith and his prayer. And then it has 
going to see and, and even a little bit of Elizabeth Shue. And then hopefully he can get through the Black Pit so he can get back to all that stuff that's important to him personally. But um, that trailer bit that you're talking about where the stuff that looks good in the trailer, they did one of those things in Greyhound that's super annoying for me, which is where they insert footage that they likely never had any intention of putting in the film. There's a blank open sea and the sonar swings around and it's empty, empty. And then blip, 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 blip. There's like dozens of them out there. And hmm. Tom Hanks says, here they come. And then blam, blam, blam. And there's all this shooting. They did it for Predators too. Mm-hmm. And they, they filmed multiple scenes where they would focus like those the lasers on their shoulders that they would point at you before they shoot you with it. They had oh, like yeah. someone got lit up by like dozens and you're like, oh, man, oh, there's right. going to be dozens of predators. And they're like, yeah, we filmed that stuff because it looks good in the trailer, but we had no intention of putting it in the movie. That's very frustrating. <laughs> well, there are definitely moments where they were extremely outnumbered and it wasn't looking so good for the Greyhound and its convoy or its fleet or whatever you call it. So many battles. It was a little Groundhog Day, no? Well, it was just not. It wasn't the Groundhog Day because you don't have a moment to sleep. Or to, to to touch on these moments of familiarity, it was just periscope off the port bow or whatever, and there's something coming, you know, the torpedoes in the water, and you're like, here we go again, right? Constantly. Right. They just dipped to black so they can go from action sequence to action sequence. Dude really should have eaten something. Yeah, you mentioned, like, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't sit down, he has constant command of the bridge, and he doesn't eat. And that was a thing that they played through with uh, Cleveland. I mean, were you bummed about Cleveland? So Cleveland was the chef. He was the chef who went out of his way to prepare food that the captain liked so that maybe by chance the captain would eat. And when he didn't eat, he would just pack up the food and try again. I felt like Cleveland was doing his job and his job wasn't judgment he prepared food which goes to waste but so many plans that greyhound and the entire convoy had went to waste right but still they diligently have to do their job and and you can see the disappointment because it seemed that while they were in the thick of their duty and he could just chuck it and and my job is to cook so i cook and whether you eat it i don't care that wasn't the case but he could because he actually cared personally about the captain's welfare in as much as while the captain had a whole charge of a convoy that he was responsible for he also cared as much as humanly possible about the human element on those ships sometimes he was forced to say how many lost okay patch it up and move on and other times he was certainly concerned about the physical well-being of everybody in both on his ship and in his convoy, even if he didn't have the time to remember or notice or recognize every one of them. Yeah, there are a couple ways he did that. One, after the first battle, he ordered that the chefs prepare hot food if available. It was just a small gesture to show that he does care about his crew. And then... Also, I felt like he demonstrated his care for his crew by maintaining his um, manners. (laughs) Like he was just like unfailingly polite with names and titles and his P's and Q's. And I mean, maybe that's just a part of remaining calm and poised and in control in the midst of battle. But it seemed like a way to suggest that he cared about people. Yeah, he was uh, he was no Quint. Although I compared him in my head to Quint many times in Jaws, he was an instinctual hunter. When the uh, equipment would inevitably fail, he would rely on his instinct to know exactly where to position, 
how to avoid the torpedoes, what to do to anticipate the chess-like strategic moves of the U-boats as they position themselves to attack the convoy from all directions. He was nice and calm, but still kind of in his element and knew what he was doing while still remaining not grumpy like Quint was. <laughs> Did he seem to have some remorse about taking out the Nazis? Yeah, definitely a human element. I think that the subs were like they were wolves, but they were also sharks, right? You got the periscope that cuts through the water, looks like the fin. They had that high-pitched whine incessantly every time we would get a shot of one of the subs. Do you think it was important that we had the voice of the gray wolf chiming in every now and then with his antagonizing how? It was a reminder of the enemy, the actual enemy that we were against. But no, it was difficult to humanize the subs because first they were submarines and then they were wolves and then they were sharks to me. So the human voice, I understand. It represented the, the very real human enemy element. They, they were basically reduced to scraps of metal? Well, yeah, they were they were like sharks to me. And like I said, like Quint, you keep a weather eye on the horizon and you see a fin and you call it out and it gets too close to the boat and you're just looking to spear it or you're just looking to blast it out of the water. It wasn't lost on me that every time they destroyed one of the subs, the oil slick looked like blood. Yeah, it did. It seemed like Kraus was the Quint character on his way. His destiny, live or die, was to see the mission through. And he did. And he relied on his wits and his instinct and his professional experience. And everyone else just kind of looked to him in the hopes that he would steer them in the right direction. There was one kind of character-defining moment where he has to make a choice between going back for one of the merchant ships or saving the lives that that abandoned ship. I felt like that was a it was a character-defining moment, but also an attempt to add something more than just plot and battle to the film. Yeah, the burden of command. And a lot of it was definitely every time we saw his face, we saw the human element and the weight of the decisions that he was forced to make in the heat of battle in his expressions. And no better face to kind of do that than Tom Hanks. But we were sure up on that mug a lot. Yeah, it sucks that he was unaware of who was speaking to him half the time. Uh, Fippler and Flipper and Cleveland and the other guy. It was unfortunate. The sailors were sort of nameless, faceless. And of course they weren't. Of course they were actual people. But definitely Tom Hanks was front and center and everyone else would sort of look to him. And yeah, we were right up in his mug. But that's what's great about Tom Hanks. It was so great to watch him in a movie that didn't have a lot of dynamics. Definitely had, you know, battle and, and, and things. But it was mostly him on a ship in a hat looking grim or having to make tough decisions. It was almost <laughs> like Darkest Hour, right? It wasn't as scene chewy as Gary Oldman uh, as as Churchill, but it was it he he was on a ship, yes, and he could look go outside and, and peer through his binoculars, but it was in such close up a lot of the time he might as well have been in a bunker confined and making decisions and shouting into microphones. Yeah, basically it was it was a he was on the prow of a ship as opposed to in a bunker. Right. And uh, a lot of the time he was inside, and I'm sure a lot of that was green screened, and uh, they did spend some time on an actual ship. But it felt very intimate, and it felt like war room stuff. It felt like strategy positioning more than it was him, you know, facing the elements, clinging to the mast of a ship, you know, Lieutenant Dan style shouting at the enemy. Also a Tom Hanks movie. 
I was trying hard to keep the crew, the seamen separate so that they weren't all nameless, faceless crew right. people. And even looking at their their credits, it's not like they're Boatswain 1 and Sailor 2. Like, these people have names. So I think there was the intention to kind of give them some character. I mean, notably, he had Cleveland, the chef, who unfortunately dies in battle and then has a ceremony where his body's wiggled off of his stretcher into the water. And that was, he was probably the most distinctive crewman. But then there was also the messenger guy who was always at his shoulder ready to deliver his message. And he had his moment where he had to be, where Captain Krause had to kind of shake him up, remind him of his training so that he could continue to do his job as crazy as things were getting. And then there was the radar guy or the sonar guy who seemed like he really had his stuff together, was very reliable. And then there he was, there was his second the Charlie Cole character. Right. Who, who I, really I thought liked. was the dude. Yeah, I like him too, but I mixed him up with the dude from um, Titanic. Titanic. Exactly. Yeah. I remember I saw that exact, that guy's exact face and I was like, no, he plays a role similar to that. I just cannot remember what it was. Yeah. I thought, I mean, maybe it was just the ship similarity or something. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, so that you, you kind of touched on the issue with this movie because Greyhound is not a perfect movie by any means. Um, it was an attempt to give everybody a personality and give everybody a place, but it kind of devolves in the constant onslaught of battle into a haze of faces and shouted instructions. Now, I will appreciate like another Tom Hanks movie, yet another Tom Hanks movie, and this is certainly not his only World War II movie, but like Apollo 13, they would shout commands and they weren't dumbed down. It was Navy jargon, and all of it gave you that sense of order amidst the chaos and that everything had procedures and procedures needed to be carried out effectively if anything was to happen if they were and if they were to survive but a lot of the commands i didn't understand and you go with it and it feels correct it feels accurate both uh, technologically and period accurate right tom hanks feels legit like there was there wasn't a moment i didn't believe that he was giving those commands with conviction and that is undoubtedly the strength of the movie. Tom Hanks' ability to look grim and look thoughtful and pensive and and be decisive and authoritative as America's dad, as he is. I, I honestly feel like this movie was not unlike Tom Hanks's real experience on set. Everyone looks up to him. Everyone revolves around him like satellites on a set. He is undoubtedly the star, and uh, people will defer to him, especially if he's the producer or the writer, and definitely the star. And you hope that he will eat the crafty that you put in front of him, or whatever. And that he doesn't die from coronavirus. Right, and that he doesn't die from coronavirus. So this could have been Tom Hanks' last movie. Yeah, what was but the film he was shooting in Australia? It was the Baz Luhrmann Elvis biopic. I think he was yeah. a manager or a record producer. So that was the ill-fated one that almost did in Tom Hanks, but it didn't. He seems to have no lasting effects. So then if this is a Tom Hanks movie, which it is, I mean, it's literally, I mean, not surprisingly, but it's it's billed as Tom Hanks, Greyhound, right. an Apple original film in that order. What room does that leave for Aaron Schneider? Is he the director? Yeah. No clue. It's a name that's, that I'm not familiar with, and I could look him up, but that would be disingenuous. I don't know Aaron Schneider's works. I just know that this is Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks is what you need. It didn't even necessarily matter that he wrote this screenplay to adapt The Good Shepherd. It was an effective 
in that way, Tom Hanks is no stranger to technical stuff. Uh, he became focused on space and the Apollo missions in particular after Apollo 13 did from the Earth to the Moon, produced it, and then uh, likewise after Saving Private Ryan, another World War II Tom Hanks movie, did Band of Brothers and kind of expanded on the stuff that he loved about it. So I'm not surprised that he delved into this and wrote the screenplay, and I wouldn't be surprised either if he hired the director or chose the director to realize his vision. He's Tom Hanks, dude, and he perhaps single-handedly boosted Apple TV Plus's subscribership by like 20 to 30 percent. What do you think that this means for Apple TV Plus or for the theatrical, excuse me, the streaming first releases of, you know, what are supposed to be theatrical films? I think it's good for the streaming services. I think it's bad for movies in general. You know, it's great. When we're in this, when we're in these uncertain times, that we have this kind of stuff available to us, that we have big movies that we watch on little screens or relatively small screens, I don't like it. It's not good for me. Now that said, while this movie was neato, it's very hard to digitally render water in all its fluidity and complexity. So it looked great a lot of the time, and then sometimes it didn't. Right. Especially the water, the sprays and things and and how water re reacts in the wind and and that kind of stuff. There were some overhead shots that were just completely perplexing, like they cut to the super wide God or sky vantage point, And I, right. I was like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. I saw right. like dots on water. It might as well have been a game board, right? A board game board. Yep. So the point was, I didn't love a lot of the effects. I felt that they were fine they were convincing enough but by no means state-of-the-art it was definitely one of the weaker points of this movie and as such maybe that's better if we see that on a smaller screen where it's not so blatant if it were blown up tom hanks seems to think that everything is in place and that that was the fault of apple tv that they that it looked worse on a small screen. I have a hard time believing that. So good in that the movie got to be seen and that many people will watch it uh, apple TV paid a premium for this content, and that's great for everybody, except for the purists who would love to see movies like this on the big screen, who make a determined effort to see event movies like this on big screens where you get the maximum amount of enjoyment and it feels more immersive. But a lot of people don't do that. People buy movies out of the trunk so they can watch on their phone or on their laptops or little baby TVs or whatever. I mean, maybe it was just the seeing it on Apple TV Plus and seeing it at home, but it felt like one of those direct-to-streaming releases. Like, um, you know, Capone, bad comparison, but maybe dodged a bullet not going theatrical. Maybe did better streaming first, even though that wasn't its original intention. I mean, the old guard extraction, like they feel like direct-to-streaming films. Yeah, it's a phenomenon that I haven't figured out yet. Like coronavirus, we haven't figured out what the new normal is or if this is appropriate or how it would have been in a different world. I agree. I felt like his personal introduction wasn't terribly immersive. Elizabeth Shue was great, but it wasn't anything that really lent itself to the stakes. So the bookends of his personal life didn't feel like a real serious movie, I guess one might say. We were just sort of waiting to get to the battle, and then it became a different movie than we thought it was going to be. I was surprised 
by the constant onslaught, and there was no point at which it returned to those earlier themes or tones uh, until the end when he finally got to go to sleep under the godlight in his stateroom. I mean, they li- they didn't even try. They didn't even try to stitch it together with a story in the downtime. They were like, let's just cut to black and go from sequence to sequence. But it would have, like you said, it would have made it theatrically in a different world. And maybe it wouldn't have done as well. Maybe it would have been a lesser Tom Hanks movie. I think that everything that they put in the movie was important. It just didn't connect in the way that was as seamlessly as we would have hoped. Yeah, I felt like they didn't even try. They just kind of cleared the field so we could get down to fighting. Yep. And they used a time clock to just give us a sense of where we were in this otherwise never-ending battle. And in all these movies, Extraction, The Report, and Dark Waters. Dark Waters. Anytime they would give me a timestamp or a date, I don't care, because I'm not tracking it that closely. Right. Well, in in this sense, you knew that air cover was coming, right? And they they also got permission to break protocol and do less zigzaggy maneuvers and go more direct to Liverpool or whatever British destination they had. But there was there was some sense of like so you knew that there was going to be some safety at the other end and the quicker you could get there the better. But otherwise, it didn't matter time-wise because you knew it was right. just going to be from it was just going to be one battle to the next until Tom Hanks got everyone home and then the ship passed by and everyone cheered for him and then he gets teary-eyed. Yeah, because like Saving Private Ryan, they had to get their victory, their personal victory that they strived for, which was to destroy the sub that was hounding them with the howling guy on the other end. And then once that happened, the second sub that was inevitably going to be their demise got taken down by the air cavalry, right? The air air cover? Yep. And then Krauss finally got in touch with, uh, with his British relief, and he's like, we almost died. And they're like, oh, jolly good. Have a cup of tea. <laughs> we'll take it from here. Thank you. And this was, how many crossings have you done, Captain Krause? Right. And he's like, this is my first one. He's like, well, hope it's easier for you next time. <laughs> right. And we'll see you next time <laughs> on, on Greyhound 2, the voyage home. <laughs> it's whatever. And then we got the card, the Battle of the Atlantic, 72,000 dead, which is horrible. It brings back into perspective how serious and real the battles all across the world for World War II were. It's just hard to associate that real carnage and and loss. I think we're going to figure it out, right? I think that Greyhound sits in this quasi-theatrical, super high-premium streaming space, and we'll figure out what these movies mean. And if movies like this, I mean, for lack of a better term, like movie theatrical will continue to go streaming first and your rating is i'm going to give this movie an all right rating it wasn't the best tom hanks movie out there but i was happy to see tom hanks i think he anchored it responsibly and he was everything this movie needed i think that it would have been a worse off movie without him but i don't know that he made it a good enough movie for me to give it a totally rating all right. I mean, it maintained my attention. It kept my attention. It it looked pretty cool up on our home movie screen. Um, so there you have it. You got an all right from Wes, a good from Iris. That was our review on Greyhound, an Apple original film now streaming on Apple TV+. We'd love to know what you think. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. 
Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.